certainly a lot harder than it looks. You know, we all see the, the rich property developers driving around in their McLarens and flying their helicopters, but there are a lot of people who either make no money or it costs them a little bit of money. I, I, I'd encourage everybody to have a go, but certainly do it with, a, with an open mind as, as an experience to learn rather than necessarily to make your fortune. You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm. Welcome to episode 325 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. Before we start, just a quick comment about episode 322, the episode we published last Monday about tax deducting your super yacht. I overlooked two important aspects, PCG 2020-3 and section 2647 ITAA 97. So we took it down for now and we'll come back to you on this one. A big thank you to Carl Jones of ProTax in Tasmania alerting me to PCG 2020-3 and at the same time, Andrew Henshaw also pointed out that there is an issue with section 26-47. So big apologies. We will come back to you on this one. Maybe our first attempt at text deducting the super yacht was too good to be true. But now let's start the episode for today. Property Development 101 with Andrew Andreev of Andreev Lawyers in Sydney. Let's start a new mini-series today about property development. We are running out of time to cover cryptocurrencies this year, so we will do that early next year. But in this mini-series, starting today, let's look at property development. How should you structure it? Should you use a unit trust or a company? What is the line between capital and income? And when would you use a call option or a bare trust? Let's ask Andrew Andreev of Andreev Lawyers in Sydney. The first question to Andrew is, what size of development projects does NRAF lawyers usually work on? Anything from sort of a mum and dad splitting their block up to probably one of Adelaide's top three developers and then in Sydney sort of mid-tier developers. So yeah, we do everything from sort of splitting blocks up to multi-storey and broad acre subdivision. So I wouldn't say that's all I do, but it's certainly from a tax perspective, something that we've been involved in for a long time, just because yes, Australia's, yeah. you know, you know what Australia's like, everybody's a developer. When you say mid-tier, how big are the projects when you are mid-tier? Well, I'm just trying to think about sort of size... I would say 20 to sort of $45 million value. I'm just trying to put that into context, maybe a 20-storey um, apartment complex or maybe, like I say, a two- or three-stage subdivision, infill sort of urban developments, those sort of things. Yeah, but, I mean, obviously there's probably the, the, the volume of work comes more from the sort of smaller developers and the people who sort of part develop, part own, that sort of, those sort of people. How would you break the development market into a kind of digestible junk? I think so. There's, I would say there's the amateur developer. So that would be mum and dad splitting a block. It would be a couple of people who are otherwise have other jobs, but, you know, to think that they're going to do a subdivision of, say, one to five lots. You know, they might be accountants or they might be tradies. A lot of tradies get into it because they can do the plumbing or the electrical or whatever. Then I think you have the sort of professional builders and then the builders then go into developing so they, they know how to build stuff but they 
they've just been getting a fee, a fixed price building contract, and they say, well, hang on, I'm losing all the profit. So they then become, I would say, your smaller developers who might be doing, you know, your five to ten allotment, two-storey sort of developments. Then you have your, I would sort of say, the mid-tier, which is the people starting to subdivide either inner urban areas or sort of expanding urban areas or they might be doing if they're closer to the city they might be doing multi multi-story so that might be you know three to 15 story residential and then you've got your big super dupers oh no then you've got your then you've got your big privates so your trigger boss and your meritons and all those guys who are family owned but like large large enterprises um, and they're doing, you know, land banking, they're doing 20 to 40 storey buildings there, you know. Uh, and then you've got your listed developers like your Land Lease and your Walk Corp and all those guys who are major national developers. So I would say that's that's probably a breakdown. And if you ask me to repeat that, probably we'd struggle. <laughs> no, but I, I, I wrote it down. So <laughs> basically five categories you have the amateur developers which include mom and dad and tradies who are getting into it accountants who get getting into it then you have professional builders who are moving from a fixed price contract to getting into development doing it themselves then you have the mid-tiers that are three to 15 stories then you have the big privates like maritons etc that are family owned who do extensive land banking and probably do 10 to 40 story developments and then you of course have the big listed developers mm, that's that's a that's spot on yep yes and of course the legal needs and the way you would structure a development within those five groups of course would be very different well the interesting thing about the big privates is that they often they do have a mix of business development and also private holdings and they need to uh, you know they, they hold on to a lot of the stock and that that You know, they might be arguing that some of that is on capital account, which is something that's a bit tricky. So really, you know, from the small up to the large family operators, they do share common interests and common issues. But um, it's probably easier to talk at the smaller end of the town because, you know, it's, I guess, it's more relevant to people perhaps. Yes, but Andrew, that's actually a good point. Let's first talk about the issues that affect all four, the amateurs, the professional builders, the mid-tiers and the big privates. So one of the aspects is this whole question of capital versus income. An actual project is almost always income unless it was your family home and you label it as a as an improvement of a family home and then you move back in when it's done and then a year later you move out and, you know, you basically do flipping. Unless you do flipping, I guess any project is on income, correct? Yes, that's where I would start, I think. Um, when you when you say the word property development, you're, you're starting on income account or revenue account for sure. But Of course, then there is the land banking. And for the land banking, of course, the question is, is it capital or income? But when you actually start building, then it would always be on income unless you do flipping and you basically renovate your own family home. Yeah, so I, I sort of see it as three stages. So you've got the, the, the land coming into the property development scenario and then you've got the product coming out of the property development scenario. So it's sort of a pipeline. So When you go from stage one, which is I've got 
I'm a farmer and I've got land, I'm a family and I've got a house which is really big on a corner block, they're the sort of main scenarios or I'm a business that has got this big factory, uh, you know, in a, in now in an in a, in a urban area that I'm, I'm going to knock over. So you've got, you've got a capital asset there in the hands of, in somebody's hands that's coming into the development net. So that's a decision point where things can happen and you need to get that right. And then you have the development itself, which is an active process where you get planning and you engage builders and architects and quantity surveyors and all those sort of people. So it's a very active time. And then you have the disposal of the properties that have been developed or a change of use once again. So it could go back from a developer who's developed 10 houses and decides to keep five as a long-term family investment. So you've got at the front end, you've got a change of change of use from or change of character from capital to income. And then you've got a change of character from income to capital potentially. And each of those each of those points can trigger issues. And that's really where the complexity comes around the, the income capital distinction. Because if you're just a developer and you go out and buy a block of land, develop it and sell it, then it's all just on revenue accounts. It's pretty it's very straightforward. So nobody really wants any advice around that. It's very obvious what that is. But it's just when a developer inter- integrates with somebody at the front end who's got an asset on capital account or a developer is also a investor who wants to change some of their stock or some of their asset, some of their developed property back into a longer term hold. The, the land banking I would put in a different category because without going into right straight into the issues, but if somebody buys a large parcel of land to bank it for future sale, subdivision or development, it becomes a revenue asset at the very beginning. And so, yeah, so, so it becomes a revenue asset at the very beginning and people might try and argue it's on revenue account. But if you're a developer and you've got hundreds of acres of land on the outskirts of major urban centres and you've got a history of doing broad acre subdivision, there's no way that land is going to be on anything other than revenue account from the day you buy it. There's a there's a couple of cases that talk about land, I think it's called on N Globo, or which which means you know in in one parcel, still being considered trading stock of significant developers. So really, the land banking from a professional perspective, I, I would argue, is always on revenue account. Yes, but has the law just changed that you can no longer tax deduct the cost for land banking? Yeah, there. I, th- I think there's some changes around around those provisions. It's not something I've had the opportunity to look into in, in any detail. But one of the, I mean, that, that, that I guess that's another issue that the holding costs, the costs of acquiring trading stock or or a revenue asset, is considered to be sort of a, well, if it's trading stock, it's an expense. But then you've got to recognise it at the end of the year as stock on hand. But you basically can't get a deduction for the, the costs of acquiring or creating trading stock because it's sort of a absorption costing. You've got to put all those things in. But there's a distinction between the costs of acquiring or creating trading stock and the costs of holding trading stock. So there's that distinction's been accepted by the tax office traditionally and things like interest, rates and taxes and those sort of things were, were seen as um, an expense that you could claim a current deduction for as opposed to having to roll that into the cost of the the trading stock so you could you could claim that every year but you're right I think that there's been because because of this obviously the expensive time that land is banked the 
you know, the holding costs, which have been claimed on an annual basis potentially for decades, that was seen as a, a bit generous towards the, 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 you know, the, the major developers and there's been some constraints put on that. That would then be a cost that's rolled into the cost of the trading stock. So it's not like that cost is lost, but it's just not claimable in the current year. And of course, trading stock is the worst outcome of it all, because when it's on capital, you get the 50% CGT discount, so that's good. Mm -hmm. And if it was an expense, then you would get a full tax deduction, so that would be good as well. But with trading stock, you don't get the CGT discount and you don't get the tax deduction until you sell it. So it's kind of the worst of both. It is, yeah. Technically, it's trading stock's a bit, a bit crazy, but under Division 70, Technically, you do get a deduction for the cost of the trading stock in the year that you incur it, but you then have to add back the difference between the value of trading stock on hand at the end of the year and at the beginning of the year, which effectively negates the deduction for the trading stock in the current year. So that often confuses people, but that does give you the ability to recognise progressive losses sometimes in the sense that if, you know, if the value of the land's falling or the holding costs are significant or whatever it may be, the, the costs that aren't going into, aren't being capitalised in the trading stock result in a loss, then that's something that can be recognised annually. Whereas with the profit-making scheme, you need to sort of add everything up at the end of the scheme and work out whether you've got a profit or loss, and that may be years into the future. So although the trading, I think the trading stock provisions are fair and balanced, if you like, because they recognise sort of what's happening each year, You're paying out expenses to acquire trading stock, you're selling trading stock, and then at the end of the year, you know, you've either increased or decreased trading stock. So, you know, I think for an ongoing property development business, it's, you know, it, it sort of works. So the question capital or income is an issue that affects all property developers, no matter what size. But of course, it's a lot more of an issue when you already got the land held for a long time, when it was a capital asset at some stage, and then you need to pinpoint the point when it becomes an income. And now we probably need to look at differences between the different categories. How are property developments structured in a legal way? And I think there are two rough options. A, it probably varies between the different categories, but I think it also varies depending on whether you finance it all by yourself with the help of a bank or whether you bring other investors in. And I think when you bring other investors in, you have two options. I think you can either go through a unit trust and the other investors become unit holders, or you set up a company and then the investors become shareholders. And I think when you go with the unit trust, you need an AFSL license. Whereas when you go with the company solution, you don't need an AFS license. But I would love to get your input on that. <laughs> it's a it's a, it's a huge topic. Huge topic. So I'll, I'll try and I'll try and have a crack at it. So I think the first structure. So let's start from the simplest. So if you're a property developer and you you know you're self financed and you, this is something you've been doing for a long time you'll invariably be operating through a company. So you'll have a development company, which will may, may employ some head office people that do planning and liaise with designers, and you might have a brand and all that sort of stuff. Um, you might have some equipment, sort of, you know, oversight type of stuff. Computers. Um, yeah, computers, that sort of thing. And then you will, once again, invariably set up a special purpose company for each development that you, you undertake to quarantine the risks of that development within a within a limited liability company 
and that company will then contract your development company to you know manage the development you'll then engage a builder probably through the special purpose company that depending on the builder they might need a need a guarantee from the development entity and that's that's all sort of on revenue account you're paying company tax everybody's pretty happy there's not uh, not a lot of controversy that goes on there perhaps the the only additional element you might have is a holding company or a treasury type company through which you you pay up the development profits and potentially the SPV profits so that those profits are basically sucked out of the risk entities being the SPV and the development entity and then that money can then be loaned back into future developments in the future so that's how a mid-tier or senior uh, you know listed type developer would most likely structure themselves. Three questions. The first one is when you say special purpose company, of course, you don't mean special purpose as ESIC defines it. You just mean special purpose in terms of that every company is for one specific project. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And then you said SPV. Did you mean SPV or did you mean SPC for the special uh, purpose yes. so company? SP, so special purpose vehicle, SPV. Oh, I see. Depends on whether, depends on, <laughs> there's SPE, SPC, SPV, it's like yes. entity company vehicle spv is used in sort of ventures um spcs in company groups yeah so it's all the same thing but you're right yes. it's the it's a it's an entity that's specifically designated to carry on a particular project and to quarantine and and concentrate the risks and rewards of that project within that entity and then you mentioned holding company and tre treasury company are they two different things in terms of that the treasury company is the one that for example gets the bank financing and then lends it to the different SPVs as is needed? Or are the treasury company and the holding company usually one and the same? In my experience, they're, they're one and the same. So they're usually the head company of a, of a corporate group and they are the accumulator of profits. So because it's remote, the profit remains within the group, you don't have any sort of top-up tax or leakage to investors if it's a listed entity. And that Basically, because the profits have been taken into that that sort of top entity, they're then sheltered from risk and they could be then lent back into um, either the development entity or the special purpose entities on a, on a development by development basis on a, and usually on a secured basis. So that's really an internal treasury funding vehicle. I, I generally call them sort of holding companies, but if I put a diagram together for people, I'll sometimes use the word treasury just to just to sort of explain where the you know, what it's really doing from a functional perspective. So you basically have a three-layered corporate structure. You have the holding company at the top, which holds 100% of the development company, and then the development company holds 100% of each of the SPVs. I would usually have it off to the side. So the developer entity and the SPVs are, are sister companies because anytime you stack companies on top of each other, even if... You have asset protection issues. Yeah, so I, I would generally have bit off to the side. I might slip in a, a, an intermediate holding company between the ultimate holding company and the SPV, just so that if I get asked for a parent company guarantee, you can at least try and put Winkum with, with a $2 company in between. But, but really, the simpler structure is holding, holding entity with a 100% development entity that stays around for a period of time, and then 100% interest in each SPV that basically comes and goes depending on the projects. The disadvantage, of course, is that if you 
start a project in an SPV and for some reason it doesn't go through, for example, because you can't get council approval, then you have costs stuck in this SPV that you can't push up. Mm. And then you probably have some kind of contract that allows you to on-charge the costs back to the holding, correct? A a mid-tier or a corporate developer, they would ordinarily consolidate the group. So there'd be, for tax purposes, there'd be sharing among the three entities. Uh, they, They might not, but I would say in most cases they would. The only reason you wouldn't is if you wanted to sort of have a, you didn't want to have the the um, sort of joint and several tax obligations across the whole group. But invariably, in I, I see that they do consolidate. So yeah, uh, and that's that's a good idea because it means then that you have ring fenced each project hmm. from creditors, so you don't have cross claims. But at the same time, you don't lose losses when a project doesn't go ahead. That's right. Yeah, yeah, and you can sort of pull funding costs and that sort of thing. Coming back to that concept of the third-party funding, sometimes the larger entities may have facilities directly with the holding company or a treasury company, but usually the banks will take primary security over the over the property entity, the SPV, and then seek parent guarantees or you know group guarantees. Um, really, I mean, most would have a single funder who would take comprehensive security across the whole group. How do you usually see amateurs, especially when there's a mum and dad involved, how do you see those usually structured? Yeah, so the the structure I've just outlined is probably more akin to the mid-tier to upper to large to listed, so the top three, if you like. So the bottom two, which is the amateurs and the sort of professional builder turned developer, so the bottom two sort of categories of developers, they are generally capital constrained. So that means that the, their ability to, so they, they're used to being in an environment where they get paid a contract sum to deliver and they get paid you know, as and when they deliver and, and funding isn't really a, a core skill of, of that group. And so when, it come, when they turn to, develop, to become a developer, the, the issue is how they fund the capital cost of the land. So at this point, many of them, and I'm sort of talking here the smaller developers and the builders turn developers. So they they will look for parcels of land that are strategically good for development, and they may be you know, small farms or urban infill is usually more the case. And they will approach the owner of the property and see if they can do a deal whereby the time at which they need to pay for the land or the time at which the landowner gets a return is deferred as far as possible and ideally deferred all the way up to the point in time that the new titles fully developed are passed to the third-party purchasers. So so they are looking to venture with, or I'll use the word loosely, partner with the landowner and they bring the development and building skills to the table and the landowner brings the capital asset to the table. And so that that raises the, the issue of what's the best structure and Really, the same considerations apply technically because you just say, okay, we'll just use a company, it's on revenue account, et cetera. But that's not really, that, that has a, a number of transaction costs associated with getting the land into, out of the hands of the, the landowner and into a sort of a development structure. And so to avoid those costs, they, they try and structure some sort of a joint venture arrangement where the landowner continues to hold the land and the developer sort of gets some contractual arrangements in place and then undertakes a development, and then the original landholder sells the, the finished title, the finished product, 
to the to the punters, the people who are buying the new properties, and then the landowner and the developer split the profits in some form. So that's how that, that's one scenario. Another scenario might be that the developer says, this is the sort of amateur developer turns or the builder turned developer person, they may wish to venture or partner with a passive investor. So rather than partner with a landowner, they might say, look, I'll get, I've got some friends who will put some money in and I'll do the develop, put the development expertise in and, you know, we'll go that way. In which case, people often look to, well, do we use a company or do we use a unit trust? And for the current purposes, we'll just push all the AFSL and all the capital raising provisions to one side. So let's just assume it's a small scale thing. The, the choice between a company and a unit trust uh, really comes down to a, an issue of timing of tax. So a company will pay tax and then pay out a franc dividend, and that can take time to, for the tax to be paid before the dividend can be paid and that sort of stuff. Whereas a unit trust will flow the, the profits directly through to the entities that are being used by the, by the investor and the, the developer, and then they can deal with their own tax issues. In both cases, if it's a one-off development, you know, they both work. They're, they're definitely both used quite often. But where I see problems with those sort of structures is often if the development is not successful, then you've got losses stuck in either a unit trust or a company that's owned by two unrelated parties. So if it's a unit trust, you've got to pass all the loss trust issues and we I've been involved in a number of sort of multi-unit trust structures of developers where there's been massive losses when there's been a downturn in the property market and it's just been a complete nightmare. Uh, similar with companies, you can get losses stuck in companies and then you've obviously, the same developers, or the same parties need to do another development that's successful um, if they're going to pass this, the continuity of ownership test and then, you know, otherwise you're going to really struggle. So I often say in those scenarios that, you know, a, a partnership of trusts or a partnership of companies between the investor and the property developer is a better structure because they each then have their own bucket, which is either going to make profit or a loss. Uh, that they, If it's two trusts, they can make family trust elections over their respective buckets. If it's two companies, they can, they can consolidate their own company into their own groups. So, you know, I, I find for sort of smaller groups of people coming together to do a development, that sort of an arrangement is going to be going to be more appropriate. So more of a once again the joint venture type scenario that we've touched on for the sort of landowner and developer. Yes, because when you have a partnership of trusts or companies, then each of the trusts or each of the companies incurs cost, incurs losses, but then it's your company, and then you can go ahead and do another partnership that then hopefully will result in a profit and you pass the continuity of ownership test and hence you can use those losses. Yes, because you've got, you've got 100% of your company and the other person's got 100% of their company and there's no change. You just sort of split and go your own way and take your share of the losses with you. So that's quite... And the same thing would happen with trusts, except you'd need to make a family trust election over your trust and you know get make sure you satisfy the ability to carry forward those losses. The other thing you can do with your own trust and your own company is potentially inject profits from other sources in or if it's profitable, inject those profits into other loss-making um, ventures of your own or, you know, negative yield property or whatever it might be. So it just gives you a higher degree of flexibility to manage 
the good and the bad outcomes that could potentially happen from a small-scale development. You can have another company charging for certain management services or similar and hence transferring the losses from one company to the other. I'm always a bit, not hesitant the wrong word, I like, I like there to be a real purpose for any sort of intercharges. Of course, otherwise they don't pass. Yeah, I either recommend consolidation, which means you don't even have to talk about that. Or if if you aren't if they aren't consolidated, then you need to look at the assets that are being deployed and the risks that are being undertaken and the activities that are being undertaken. So activities, risks, and assets. And then you need to say, well, where is where is an appropriate where you know where's an appropriate flow of charge to go? So if somebody's using an asset of someone else's, that justifies a charge. If somebody's doing something for someone else, that that justifies a charge. And what we've actually seen. In a number of contexts, also in property development, but more so in private family groups, is the tax office is now using sort of very simple principles like Ewer's case and those sort of things, which basically say, you know, let's say a company borrows some money and then enables it to be used by another company or a trust, putting aside Division 7A issues for a minute. But if there's not an appropriate inter entity charge, then you basically lose the deductibility of the expenses. In the entity that's providing, that's actually incurred the, the cost. So let's say you had a staff member in your development company, and then that staff member provided services to your SPV, and then you didn't charge the SPV for the use of that staff member, then the tax office can come along to your development company and deny you a deduction for the staff's wages because you've incurred an expense in your development company that was not referable to making money of like, not the accessible income of the development yes. so there's they're, they're trying to basically in, introduce a domestic transfer pricing regime in without actually passing any legislation i don't know if you've come across that in your other talks but you know any anywhere where you're using assets and and activities are being performed or risks are being assumed or undertaken so i think there's going to be a more of a, a focus in the future around that issue and that you know it's obviously property developers who have multi-entity structures are going to need to be particularly aware of that that issue. You mentioned a case. Ure's uh, case, U-R-E. It's a very it's an old case, and it might have even been in the 70s, U-R-E, Ure's case. And that was basically where somebody borrowed money in their own name and lent it to their family trust, but they didn't charge. They charged a lower rate of interest or it might have been no, no rate of interest, and they were just denied a deduction for the interest because they the, the, the on-loaning of that money wasn't didn't generate an equivalent amount of income back to offset the loss. So yes, it's, it's quite an old famous case that you learned at uni. <laughs> yes. And so then coming back to this domestic transfer pricing issue, if you have, let's say, three companies and they're all mother and daughter companies or sister companies, etc., and then one incurs a cost that really benefited another, then the ATO can raise that based on the UK case as a domestic transfer pricing. Yeah, so if it's consolidated, obviously that all falls away because it's treated as one taxpayer. And if there's an argument that if the a top company incurs an, an expense for a bottom or a lower company, this is like an ANZ case, you can argue that it's still deductible because you anticipate that you're going to get more dividends from the lower company because you've reduced their costs. That's like an indirect argument around your case. But if it's sister to sister or it's child to parent none of that stacks up so you know you can get in a complete mess and you know people are getting in a complete mess quite frankly we're going a bit off topic but 
farmers who hold land in farm trusts that have borrowed money in the farm trust but don't charge the farming partnership for the use of the land, they're getting denied deductions. It's a bit of a, it's, all, it's going to be crazy. I guess just on the income capital point, my final, we haven't really talked about mere realisations. We've sort of talked about the change in use between a capital asset, let's say it's you know, a family home or a farm or a business premises or something like that being ventured or contributed into a property development. There is this, there is a lot of people think that if they if they just do a little bit, then they'll fall within this concept of a mere realisation and that, that their gain will all be on capital account. I guess that, you know, the point there is, the tax office is quite aggressive in pushing back the line of what constitutes a mere realisation so that if you're really doing anything other than the most basic of tasks to dispose of your land to a developer, then that can be that can be an issue. Can you elaborate on this term, mere realisation? So mere realisation, mere is just M-E-R-E, correct? Correct, that's right. And what is that about? So let's say you had a farm and it was 10 acres or, you know, let's say 10 acres, and then... Um, you've had it for 20 years or it's been in the family for generations and it's on the edge of town and so you think it might even be pre-CGT and you the developer comes along and says or the council rezones some of the land and you think, oh, this is great. It's I can now um, subdivide it into 10-acre lots, lots and, and sell it off and I'll, it'll all be tax-free. And the issue there is if you just sold the land... As, a, as one big 10-acre block, it would definitely be tax-free because you'd just be selling it, you know, merely realising your asset. But if you sort of bought some bulldozers and some fencing equipment and you did all the planning yourself and you basically set up a little business to sell off the 10 acres, then you've clearly changed the nature of what you're doing with that land from holding it as a farm to to putting it into a property development business. So that's sort of one, one end of the spectrum versus the other end of the spectrum. In the middle, you could do a little bit of planning, maybe get a surveyor to draw up the 10 lots and then sell those lots to a developer. And the question is, is that a property business where basically some of what you receive should be income or is it just still selling your property, which would mean that it's all capital? And in that little middle zone, there's this grey area between a mere realisation of a capital asset, in which case it's all on capital account, At the other end, it's you've gone full-on property developer. And then in the middle, you can get caught by, by something called a profit-making undertaking or scheme. And the famous case on this is Whitford's Beach, where a group of people owned some land along quite a nice beachfront. And rather than sell it off as a one lot, they entered, uh, they, they did some planning. And they actually didn't do too much, but this one went to the High Court. But it was it was ultimately determined that They had done more than merely sell the, the beach property in, in the most advantageous way. They'd actually stepped over the line and that at some point they had ventured the land into a profit-making scheme. There's something less than carrying on a business, but something more than merely realising your capital asset. And the consequence of that are quite complicated, but the bottom line is once you step over the line, once the level of your activities have gone beyond merely selling your property and they've now reached the point of a profit-making scheme, the land changes from a capital asset to a revenue asset and any profits you make past that point where that crystallisation, that change happens, are going to be taxed as revenue with the full rates of tax rather than 
capital. And that can happen for a pre-CGT asset or it can happen for a small business CGT asset. It can happen for a post-CGT asset with the discount. So, you know, the consequences can be anything from zero tax if it's on capital account for a pre-CGT or, you know, concessional CGT asset, all the way up to full rates of tax if you're if you if you stumble into the into the revenue mode. So that tends to be what a lot of time is spent by accountants and lawyers when people come to them with an existing capital asset that they're thinking about selling by way of development. And that gets quite complicated. <laughs> yes, yes. Now, looking at the different structures we discussed before, let's just use an example. And that is a subdivision project where we take a 40-acre piece of land and we subdivide it into 40 blocks. We build roads, we lay gas pipes, we lay electricity, etc. Mm -hmm. We get 10 investors in to finance this with some bank lending and then at the end we sell it all. How would we structure this? And, and did we own it as a capital asset in the first place? Or no, we it... would buy it. Oh, buy it. Okay, yeah. I would most likely... 10 investors, uh, it, it would be, I think we'd be coming down to a, a company or a unit trust again. In the, At the smaller end, you know, 10 investors, let's say it's a one-off project, I may tend towards a unit trust only because it's going to be simpler for the untaxed profits to flow through to each investor and then they can deal with that in their own, in their own way rather than a company where I'm going to have to pay company tax and then account to them for frank dividends and those sort of things. So I'm probably going to, to, to use a unit trust in that. And I, I don't, I say that, a, the reason I'm hesitating is I don't like unit trusts particularly um, just because of they, you know, issues with losses and, and bits and pieces. But in the, in the scenario you've outlined, I would say that a unit trust is probably the right entity to bring those 10 people together. The, I would probably have them subscribe for some units and potentially also put some money in by way of sort of loan notes or debt so that as as money is realized I can repay that a lot easier than, than sort of reducing the capital of the unit trust it gives me much more flexibility I'm assuming that we would have a company trustee for the unit trust which would affect which in this case if it's, it's a one-off project that would be the development entity as well because we're probably not going to create a lot of development assets or any long-term employees or anything like that And that entity would then engage a builder or, or the relevant, if, if it's a you know, subdivision with roads, that sort of stuff would engage the contractors and those sort of things. That sort of structure is probably would enable us to get some bank debt, at least some level of bank debt, but potentially not a lot. But if there's equity being put in by the, by the investors, then we could probably match some of that with some, with some sort of second-tier bank debt. You already pointed at that you would probably make a lot of it loan debts because it's easier to repay the loans than to distribute capital out of the unit trust. So that means most of the capital would come through the loan from the investors and then some of it would come through the banks. Sometimes you might not do that if a lot of the investors are borrowing and you want to ensure that they can get a deduction for the interest they're paying on their loans to contribute into the unit trust. It's It's easier for them if they bought units. I'm just talking out loud here, but if they borrow to buy units, then they don't. It's a capital cost. Capital cost, which they can they can claim the interest, but they've bought an asset being the unit that they can, they don't need to receive a return on every year. Whereas if they use that money for a back-to-back -back loan, based on that case we talked about earlier, they would need to receive 
interest uh, at least equal to you know what they were paying the bank, which can sometimes put cash flow pressure on the development in the initial stages. So you would have to consider the balance of, of debt to equity. But when we've set these things up for people, you know, either self-funding or you know they've got you know, they're, they're basically putting in free cash, then it's it's often easier to have some of that cash go in by way of loan, you know, hold a loan so that that can be repaid quite easily. Does the need for an AFSL license does that raise any issues? Not, not at this stage, but it certainly comes up when, you know, we, we see a lot of uh, professional services, businesses, whether they're financial planning or accounting and not so much lawyers because they're a bit more regulated in this area, but the people want to put these syndicates together. So let's say a client's got this 40 acres and says to their accountant, oh, you know, I've told that it's been rezoned, but I just don't have the expertise or the money to to um, To, to follow it up and then the accountant might say, oh, well, I can put a syndicate together, I'll get 10 of my other clients involved and and we can we can make it happen. You are stumbling into, you know, an absolute hornet's nest of regulation under the Corporations Act to do with financial products and financial advice and all of that stuff. But there is a, for private funds or excluded funds, which you would hope to fall within, you can raise sort of up to $2 million from 20 people every 12 months. So that's a it's called the 20 to the 12 rule and not fall within most of the capital raising and financial product, financial advice type regulations. It's That's a very, very broad comment that needs a lot of caveats. I don't want to be one of those lawyers and then spends the next half an hour explaining, you know, <laughs> all the exceptions to what I've just said. But one of the key exceptions is that when you're counting the $2 million or the 20 people, you exclude any contributions from anybody who's directly involved in the company raising the money or the trustee raising the money, so the directors and some of their associates. You also exclude anybody who's putting in more than $500,000 because they're considered to have enough money to look after themselves. And you also... Uh, exclude anybody who provides a certificate from their accountant saying that they're a sophisticated investor, which relates to their sort of how much assets they've got and how much income they earn each year that sort of puts them into a category where the regulator considers that they can look after themselves. So it's quite common for these smaller funds to raise significantly more than $2 million of investor funds. The, I guess the final thing we're saying is If you, as an accountant, do this on a regular basis or you're the sort of person in the middle of it all, coordinating it all, you can inadvertently find yourself in a financial services business without a license just by mere the fact that you're doing this in a professional business-like manner. And that alone, even if you're doing one of these or you know, one or two, can end you in hot water as far as not having a license. I was getting really excited when you spoke about the 2012 rule because I thought we were talking about 2 million from 20 people so that we were talking about 40 million. But it oh, is oh, actually sorry, 2 no. million in total from 20 yes. people. That is actually very humble. $2 million isn't what it was five or 10 years ago. Yeah, you don't get five as 2 million. It might not even cover the planning costs. No, that's right. Yeah. So the only thing is that if you let, if you entered into a, a much bigger development, chances are the people investing would mostly qualify as sophisticated people and most, you know, probably be putting in more than half a million. So you sort of fall outside those rules and you can you could raise significantly more. But if you're just raising money from mum and dads and family and friends and clients that you sort of know well, then yes, you'd bump up against that $2 million pretty quickly. 
if our 10 investors all contribute more than 500,000, then we don't need to worry about an AFSL because they are all qualify as sophisticated investors. Correct. That's right. Mm. Yep. And then what insurances do we need in property development? I think it depends on whether we run it through a company or whether we run it for a trust. It seems to be that there are different insurances you need depending on how you structure it. There's a number of different layers of insurance. So there's the as the primary insurance associated with the land, so as the owner of the land, you need to or occupier of the land. You, if anybody comes on the land and trips over, you want to have you know third party liability cover. As the builder, you have statutory obligations as to the insurances that you need to maintain and and purchase to cover you know what you've done on the land. As the developer, to be honest, I think it's pretty unregulated because the schemes sort of think that you you know you're going to engage a licensed builder and the licensed builder is going to engage licensed trades and you know it's all going to be covered that way um the um there is a level of um let's say actually there is a there is a level of capital or, or insurance that you would need to be the, the ultimate responsible developer and that that varies from state to state the if you're and then if you go into the whole raising money afsl stuff you've got to have different insurance again so yeah, I'm not an insurance lawyer, but it is a key issue that, that people need to consider when they're putting putting all the bits and pieces together. Property development comes with significant risk and some of the risk you cover through insurance, which we, which we just covered. Some of the risk you cover through contracts. Yep. And then I guess the rest you just have to grin and bear. <laughs> well, I guess it's a matter of seeing, you know, there's some risks that you can control and there's ones that you can't. One of the biggest risks is time. So whether or not you get planning is a risk. Is obviously that's a, that's a primary risk at the absolute outset, and there's two risks to that. One, you just don't get the planning, and secondly, that the planning takes significantly longer and requires going to court and those sort of things to get that. There's environmental risks. So you know, if you buy a bit of land or you take over a farm or a, or an industrial property that's you know in a city and it's being redeveloped you need to do some significant due diligence around environmental issues that you might be might be taking on. I, I think the key thing if you're not a developer is to partner with or, or invest with somebody who's got significant track record. That's going to be pretty fundamental. Uh, once again, then you want to have some input into who the developer engages as the builder because, you know, builders unfortunately do sometimes don't make it through ups and downs and you want to make sure that they've got enough of capital as a buffer. If you're the owner of the land, then you know you, the builder or developer will be wanting to potentially take security over your land. They'll be wanting to potentially be appointed as a, an attorney, power of attorney to do things with your land. They'll be wanting to take possession effectively and, and coordinate the builder and trades, which you know you just need to be careful about. So yeah, I think it, it, it is really, it, it's not a, there's a, there is a reason why often people, the advice I give them after meeting with them is, look, you're just better off selling <laughs> selling your family home to a developer and, you know, taking a good profit or a good, good price and moving on. It's not something for the lighthearted. Is it common to have insurance to cover the investment risk for the investors or that's usually a risk that doesn't get covered because it's just part of the normal risk of investing? Yeah, I've never seen any cover for for investors in that regard. No, no. Yes. That it's ultimately the risk that the investor is taking is the is the final output, the final sum of all of the 
risks and contracts that go together to form the web of the development. So that at the end of the day, whatever falls out the, the bottom for the investor is is what they're left with. So, I mean, obviously, if, the, if an investor group is putting some money together, buying some land and then engaging with a developer on a joint venture basis, they can they can contractually change the balance of who's taking on what risks so they can get it, get more of a fixed or a guaranteed or a priority return. But obviously the more guaranteed it is, the lower the return's going to be and the more risk they take, the higher the return's going to be. So it's the classic risk reward and you know, developers are the type of people who are very attuned to the risk reward and they're not going to you know, give away a big chunk of the upside and then take all the risk on the downside. So as an investor, you... You need to go in with your eyes open. I have two more questions for you, Andrew. Is it okay if I just quickly ask you? Yeah, absolutely. The two questions are, A, bear trust arrangements. Mm -hmm. To what extent have you seen bear trust arrangements in property development and why would you use it? And the other one is put and call options. When is it common to use a put or call option? So a bear trust arrangement, uh, I don't... The, the main times I've seen one used and... I haven't personally used them very much recently just because of the nature of the, the work that I've been doing in this area. But when when a developer develops a group of properties, they may, from the very outset, decide, let's say they're going to build 10 units and they might decide right from the outset they're going to keep three of them. And this is this concept of something starting capital, going to revenue, and then going back to capital. It's very difficult for a developer to establish that they've taken some of their product and they're now holding it as a capital investment. And so the way they can do that is that when they, even before they purchase the land, they might declare a bare trust over future interests in the land, which may be as designated on a plan to be three of the units or 10 of the blocks, whatever it might be and that they're going to be held by the single property owner who's going to be carrying on the development, they're going to hold three of those 10 blocks on bare trust for the developer's investment, like their family trust, for example. And then at the end of the development, when those three units are crystallised and our titles are issued, then right from that point, those three properties are held by the, by the investor's family trust um, as, as capital assets going forward. So they're so the big problem is trying to convince a tax office that at the outset, I was always going to keep three of them as investments. And then when I sell those three, I don't want to be paying revenue tax. I want to be paying capital tax. So that's one place where I've seen it used. The other place where bear trusts are often used is to obscure who ultimately owns the property. And sometimes a developer might want to buy a, a block that might be next to another block. They might, let's say they bought three, three out of four blocks that they want for a particular development and they don't want to let the person know next door that they're also bidding for that block. So they might appoint their accountant or solicitor as bear trustee or nominee to actually bid or make an, make, a, make an approach to buy that block. And before doing so, in order to avoid double duty, because there's potentially double duty when you assign contracts and stuff, the, the solicitor will execute a bear trustee that says that they're going to acquire that property on behalf of the developer or the developing entity. So... Yeah, so they're, they're handy devices, but they're, uh, yeah, they're, they're somewhat limited use in, in this context. And put and call options? They are more common, aren't they? They are because, so basically a, a, an option is a, a way for a developer to put their foot on a block of land or a parcel of land prior to 
having to commit to actually purchase it. And it would you know, generally used during that phase, maybe a planning phase where the developer wants to spend some money on feasibility and planning to get some idea from council or you know, do the sums on a block. So they go to the landowner and they, they buy the right to acquire the property rather than commit to a buy it. That's, that's called a call option. So that's the, the option to buy, or sometimes they're called a buy option because it, it's a lot easier to understand if it's called a buy option. The, they, they might pay a fee for that, for that option, which then gets rolled into the, the price of the land if they then exercise that option at a later time. A put option or a sell option is something that the owner of the land may require the developer to give them, which is the opposite of a call option. So it's the ability of the landowner to require the other party to buy the land should that be exercised. So one is the ability to call for the property. The other one is to basically push it or put it onto the other party. And then the third arrangement is a put and call. So it's sometimes referred to as a cross option. And the thing about a put and a call is that technically, it's always going to be exercised because if the value of the land goes up, the call will be made. And if the value of the land goes down, the put will be made. So th unless the land remains the exact same value and neither party wants to actually go ahead with the transaction, you're pretty sure that if a put and call is put in place that a transaction in the land will happen at some future time. And the consequences, so you know, the reason, as I've sort of said, the, the call option basically defers the point in time at which you have an actual acquisition of the land. And that can have consequences for capital gains tax purposes. It obviously defers the point in time when the developer has to pay for the capital asset, which is which is pretty handy. It also defers the point in time when stamp duty is payable on the property. And it can also defer the point in time when the land comes into the GST net. And if it's land that otherwise hasn't yet come into the GST net, when it does come in, the margin on which GST is applicable is set with reference to the value when the land enters the GST net. So if you can defer that to a future point in time, you can uh, basically reduce the margin on which GST is payable. So the, so the developers really got three reasons why they want to enter into a call option rather than buy the land. So de deferring the capital cost, deferring, getting a potentially less GST. And deferring stamp duty. And deferring stamp duty, yeah. So, of course, all of those things said, there's a whole lot of parties <laughs> who at tax office and stamp duty office aren't necessarily happy about that. So there are there are considerations. So if you assign put and call options, then it can be treated as the, the revenue officers can look for both duty on the assigner of the option as well as the person who ultimately exercises it, so the double duty effectively. And interestingly enough, in Victoria, they have extended these provisions to talk about things called economic interests. And what that basically covers is any contract that has the a party other than the landowner sharing in the potential profits on the land, which is basically a, a property development joint venture. So we've had some recent instances where we've given some advice um, on those provisions and they're quite onerous. It used to be the case that you had to acquire an economic interest of more than 50% in the land. The land needed to be worth more than a million dollars and just sharing in profit wasn't necessarily enough. And they've 
in 2019 and then recently again, they've extended these provisions such that let's say I'm the developer and I enter into an agreement with a landowner and the agreement says that I'm going to get 30% of the profits on the sale of the land after I've put the development in, I'll be treated as if I'd acquired 30% of that land from the time I enter that agreement. And then there'll be another layer of duty when that land's ultimately sold to the to the person who's buying the property, the house. So joint venture agreements in Victoria are quite hazardous now. You really need to look at this economic interest rule in Victoria. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Of the three different versions we've discussed, call options, put options, and cross options, mm -hmm. which one is the most common in property development? Is it usually a call or buy option where the developer has... Okay, the call option is the most common one. It is, yeah. The put and call is is usually only used where one party has some reason to want to defer the contract to sort of, you know, it would have to be that the, basically the parties are agreeing to sell it today, but for whatever reason they want to defer that into the future. That's, that's the only time you'd really want to do a put and call. You'd rarely see a put on its own because it just doesn't make any sense that, you know, you would sign up to something and a year later somebody forces you to buy a block when you, when you didn't really have any obligation or right to acquire it other than that. So you'll either see a call, which is the most common, you know, nine out of 10, or you'll see a put and a call. One out of 10. Yeah. So my question shouldn't have been put and call. My question should have been put or call. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Everybody wants to be a property developer. Sort of one of those things in Australia that is, we all think we know property well, and we all think that we've got the skills or the knowledge to do something other than buy and hold and sell. And I think that if you are not, If you haven't worked as a professional in the property development sector or you know or in the building general building type sector then any foray into developments whether that be as an investor or as an active participant in a smaller development uh, i think you need to see it as a learning exercise and an opportunity to have some fun and um, certainly you know i'm not an expert by any means but that i've i've been in two smaller developments myself and You know, didn't really make any money out of either of them. So, and that didn't bother me because I just saw it as an interesting experience to be a principal in a in a small development. You know, so you can you can sort of see what what it feels like. And uh, but it's certainly a lot harder than it looks. I guess is the point I'm trying to make is that you know we all see the the, the rich property developers driving around in their McLarens and and you know flying their helicopters, but there are a lot of people who either make no money or it costs them a little bit of money. So if you do, I, I'd encourage everybody to have a go, but certainly do it with, a, with an open mind as, as an experience to learn rather than necessarily to make your fortune. Welcome back. So always structure your project in a way that you can offset any losses from one project with income from another. Tomorrow, let's look at a different topic that has to do with property, but not directly with development. I just really want to clarify something before we drill deeper into development. And that is the question to what extent you can tax deduct your home loan. We already discussed this in episode 266, but I want to look at one aspect again, and that is the repurposing of a loan. If you buy your main residence and it later becomes an investment property, Under what circumstances can you tax deduct that loan? 
That is the question Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Melbourne will discuss with you tomorrow and Andrew will pull out some very good tax rulings that will back you up. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Klaus for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.